So I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to expect engineers working on systems of a certain size to know about the Saga pattern, for example, to know about how to build these resilient systems and to work with their teams to figure out what are the different failure modes, what are the things that could go wrong in the process, what are the workflows that we need to set, parts on a component can wait for other parts to recover and things like that. So identifying these things, that is the beauty of engineering these kinds of solutions. Yeah, that's very cool. That's what you make it you get me excited now, but I want to go and build some <laughs> enormous thing <laughs> you want to build some yeah. <laughs> a distributed system big thanks to our partners linode fastly and launchdarkly we love linode they keep it fast and simple get a hundred dollars in credit at linode.com slash changelog our bandwidth is provided by fastly learn more at fastly.com and get your feature flags powered by launchdarkly get a demo at launchdarkly.com this episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search that lets you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Liu explaining the problems that Sourcegraph solves for software teams. Yeah, so at a high level, the problems that Sourcegraph solves, it's this problem of, for any given developer, there's kind of two types of code in the world, roughly speaking. There's the code that you wrote and understand, like the back of your hand, and then there's the code that some idiot out there wrote. Or, you know, alternatively, if you know you don't like the term idiot, it's the code that some inscrutable genius wrote and that you're trying to understand. And oftentimes that inscrutable genius is like you from, you know, a year ago. <laughs> and, and you're going back and, and trying to make heads or tails of, of what's going on. And really, Sourcegraph is about making that code that some idiot or inscrutable genius wrote feel more like the code that you wrote and understand kind of intuitively. It's all about helping you grok all the code that's out there, all the code that's in your organization, all the code that is relevant to you in open source, all the code that you need to understand in order to do your job, which is to build the feature, write the new code, fix the bug, etc. All right, learn how Sourcegraph can help your team at info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Again, info.sourcegraph.com slash changelog. Go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. Subscribe if you're new at gotime.fm and follow the show on Twitter for the unpop polls, notifications of when we go live, and other solid tweets like interesting repos from your fellow gophers. We are at gotime.fm. All right, that's all for me. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Raya. Today we're talking about eventual consistency and managing data at scale. If you're not sure what that means, don't worry. We're going to start at the very beginning. Helping me do that, I'm joined by Tiago Mendez. Hello, Tiago. Hello. It's very nice to be here. Thank you. It's very nice to have you. Don't worry. It's not just me and you, Tiago. John Calhoun's also here. Hello, John. Welcome back. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. It's a. Uh, it's been a while. I feel like I'm a guest now. Yeah, you like missed ten episodes. And you're just officially a guest at that point. <laughs> you're always welcome. That's the thing. Host or guest, whatever you like. And also, Johnny Borsa goes here. Hello, Johnny. Hello. Yes, I am back after a <laughs> short. Is it short? Anyways, after a few weeks yeah. of being away, been busy. Yeah, busy teaching and all that stuff, you know, my other favorite thing to do yeah. other than being on this show. I hear people tell me that they've done one of your courses and loved it. So I do hear that feedback. Yeah, I enjoy hearing that. I enjoy when students reach out and say, hey, your teaching, your course, your life workshop, whatever it was, you know, helped me and in, in my career and this and that. Oh, man, I love to hear that. As a teacher, it was one of the best things you can hear. Amazing. Yeah, Absolutely. Tiago, you spoke recently at GopherCon UK, didn't you? That's right, I did. First of all, how did you decide to do that? What was the story around that? Essentially, it came from a problem. The talk originated from a problem that I have at work. So I work for an insurance company called Cover, and we have this problem, and I'll dive deeper into the problem, so I'm not going to go into too much detail, but we have the problem of changing data across multiple microservices in one go where data either has changed or has not changed. It can't be in an intermediate state. We actually don't deal with eventual consistency there. 
And I found that it was a very interesting topic and it was a very challenging topic. And it got me to research exactly what, what are the practices that we have and the patterns that we have to implement these types of changes. And I figured that there are some talks or some repos with Go doing this, but I found that there weren't a lot of talks or a lot of resources uh, specific in Go. And I thought, well, this might be a very good talk because it's a real world problem. It's actually a very challenging problem. A lot of things can go wrong. A lot of things go wrong. So yeah, that's how I decided that it would be a nice talk. And after two years or something of no conferencing, yeah, I felt it was a good thing. Yeah. And I tell you what, it's probably the talk with the most questions that I've ever seen, honestly. Like after your talk, how many questions? It was like 25 minutes of <laughs> questions or something, wasn't it? It was pretty interesting because usually when you don't have questions, you always keep get yourself wondering, was this talk that boring that no one re really has a question? <laughs> when you have a lot of questions, you think, was that this talk that shallow that I didn't explain anything? I think in that case, it was actually a, a really good thing because it just highlighted how this problem can appear in many different ways and be solved. Like there are a lot of different small things throughout this whole pattern that need to be fine-tuned to each business and to each application. And most of the questions was, were essentially about, so what if I don't want to roll back my data? What if I just want my data to essentially be all of it committed? It doesn't matter if it's today or tomorrow. Or what if I don't want distributed microservices or anything? There are so many ways of solving this problem and, and fine-tuning it that those questions were as tough as it was to be there for 25 minutes and keep seeing the hands raised, I think it's also a good thing because when that video comes out on YouTube and if I ever need to apply for a job again, I'll just share that video and it's my systems design interview there. <laughs> no, absolutely. Okay, so eventual consistency. Let's talk a bit about this. What is this problem? It's kind of one of those ones where I think non-technical people are quite shocked by the fact that this happens. Who wants to have a stab at just high level? What do we mean? When does this happen in what situation? Well, I'm wondering if anyone else wants to have a stab at it. <laughs> I can definitely give a bit of an insight. So eventual consistency is a problem that arise with the microservices and distributed world. So with microservices, we usually also have databases all distributed. So whenever we want to make a transaction, so whenever we want to make a change, that has to affect multiple data sources. So imagine that you have policy table, a vehicle table, a profile table, and you have to change all of that data in one go. With a distributed system, that's very hard to achieve because you need to make multiple requests and guarantee that the data changes. So eventual consistency in my, my view is, is you need to ask for the change to happen and you just need to be okay with the fact that the change might not happen now. It might happen in two minutes, in five minutes tomorrow, just because of networking problems, services may be down. So eventual consistency means that you make a request now, the data eventually is guaranteed to all be changed and you will eventually get all of that data changed. I noticed that it's a hard topic to actually explain it's hard to explain this eventual consistency thing. And I was trying to find a, a good analogy for it. And I thought about the analogy of, so two people that want to meet somewhere, it's a three hour drive. And one person takes two hours, the other takes three hours and they both leave at the appropriate time. But one person gets stuck in traffic, the other person arrives, but eventually that first person will also arrive there and eventually they'll be consistent and, and meet each other. Not sure if it's the best analogy, but it was what I could think of. <laughs> so if I may sort of add a little bit of nuance to that, right? So when we talk about consistency, right, that's sort of the, at the storage layer, right? So if we, let's, let's take it one step before that, right? Say to give a, an example, if uh, you have a system, whether uh, that has, is made up of multiple parts, right? So say you go on, on a shopping website and uh, you have one part of the system that is responsible for taking in the order, right? And then there's another part of the system that the first system communicates with to basically have to handle the credit card transaction, 
right, to basically charge the customer's uh, um, credit card and to send back some sort of a, um, um, yay or nay and uh, allowing yet another system to handle maybe the shipping of that, right? So you have the, all these different systems that need to be aware of, right, that a transaction has occurred that, you know, we need to, you know, package this stuff and send it over to the customer, right? So even before the storage comes in, right, what do you do, right, if for whatever reason, the first system that takes the order, let's say the shopping cart component, right, it makes a, a, a request over to the, um, the credit card processing system, it succeeds, right, in charging a customer. But then when we try to go talk to the shipping, right, a component, it fails, right? So now here you are, you haven't actually stored anything yet, perhaps, right? But here you are in a, a three interaction, right, a, a system where part of the transaction has succeeded, but part of it has failed. How do you handle the situation? There's no, this is not as simple as doing a, a rollback of a database commit, right? Because you already have one system that's communicated to a third party to process a credit card transaction, which has succeeded. You can't exactly roll that back, right? So it's not an all or nothing kind of situation. So part of building these kinds of distributed systems um, is basically figuring out, yes, there's a storage mechanism, which is going to be, you know, you, you can rely on eventual consistency there. But what do you do, right, when you have a multi-step process where some of those steps could fail? Right. And you might have to reprocess the same thing or you know, when something fails because the system you know, is unavailable or the third party you're talking to is unavailable. There's some upstream or downstream dependency um, issues. This is why distributed systems are so hard, not just at the consistency of the storage layer, but really throughout the whole stack. This is why it's such a challenging kind of problem to, to space to be in. Not impossible, just challenging, but fun, too. <laughs> Yeah, so Tiago, in your talk, you, you mentioned the saga pattern, and maybe you could tell us a little bit about what that is for anybody not familiar and what the alternatives are as well. Sure. So the saga pattern, and what is surprising is that the saga pattern was described first on a paper in 87, so it's not nothing new. Mm. But the time it was described, it was a pattern for long-lived transaction in, in a local database, so transactions that take a long time and getting those transactions done. And what happened is that with the advent of microservices, this SAGA pattern was then adapted to handle the distributed system case. And the SAGA pattern, it's not an acronym. A lot of people ask what's SAGA, mm. what's the acronym for? It's not exactly an acronym. I think it's SAGA pattern because each of the intervenients are called SAGAs or each of the transactions are called SAGAs. What it does is it comes in two flavors. One of them is it's a pattern that allows you to change data in microservices and guarantee that those changes will be consistent. And it has those rollback mechanisms that can still be hard to get, but it does feature a rollback mechanism. And the two ways you can do the saga pattern is by choreography, where you have each individual service just emitting and consuming events to process the data changes. So there's an event saying, picking up Johnny's example, there's an event saying, there was an order created, please process this order. Then the order is created. Then there's an event saying, we need to process a payment, then the payment service is responsible for processing that payment. Then there's the event saying, payment process, please ship. And there's a, another service handling this event. So that's one way to do it. The other way to do it is by orchestration, where you have a central brain. And that central brain is responsible to, for creating messages to each individual service. And so the central brain says, okay, we need to make a new order. Order service, please create a new order. Order service says, okay, order created, et cetera. And we go for the shipping service, the payment service. And once all that is done, it's up to the orchestrator to just finish up successfully. And in a nutshell, that's what the saga pattern is about. The alternatives are, I think there are, there are some different alternatives that I haven't really explored, but people often talk about a two-phase commit. And the two-phase commit is when you query each service and say, I want you to update this data. The service doesn't update the data yet. The service says, okay, I'm prepared to update this data. And you call all services. All services will give you the okay. So you call service A, okay, service B, okay, service C, okay. Okay, then we're good to go. And then you call the services again and say, okay, then do the commit. The problem with two-phase commit and why, why people tend to go for sagas when they need more resilience is that a lot of things can go wrong because 
a service can say, I'm okay to commit. And then when you go to commit, it fails. Mm -hmm. And then you, you have a situation where you might have to manually intervene or then develop another mechanism to fix these, these changes and make things consistent. If the coordinator goes down, you end up in a state where the coordinator made the request to one service, it went down. And then what happens then? The service already changed, but the others didn't. So there are a lot of things that couldn't go wrong. And Saga tries to solve this by using the asynchronicity of all of these transactions. Mm. Now, it sounds like since that paper or you know the original ideas came from 1987, I feel like this ought to have just been solved by now, isn't it? It's common enough a problem, but we all tackle it ourselves still. Why is that, do you think? It's an interesting question. I was surprised by two things after the talk. I was surprised in one point about how many people already talk about this problem online. Like there are a lot of very interesting talks, a lot of people already solving it. So it seems like it is a standard because if you go to even Azure and AWS, they have in their docs how to implement the Saga pattern using their infrastructure. I think they even have the infrastructure set up to deal with Saga. So you already have platforms that come with this out of the box and you don't need to implement anything yourself. I have a feeling, and I can't confirm this with any type of data, that it's just a a pattern that is not yet very widespread. And a lot of people, when they when they see this problem at work or day-to-day lives, you, you try to think by yourself because you think, well, this is a unique problem. We know all the information from microservices books, but a lot of books don't cover exactly a saga pattern. They just cover how you can deal with this. And so people end up dealing with it themselves without researching that there's a saga pattern, which is perfectly valid. Like if it solves your problem, it solves your problem. You don't need to go to a technical description of how you're solving it. So my gut feeling tells me that there are a lot of people that already use the Saga pattern without knowing that they're using the Saga pattern. I would probably guess that for a majority of people, they probably don't need to use eventual consistency or anything that complex. Like a lot of us work at large companies where we get it and you know, we get introduced to that. So if you're to Google or something, you pretty much have to deal with it. But if you're working at a smaller company, introducing this is just a lot of complexity you don't need. So I'm guessing there's just a ton of developers out there who never actually have to implement it. So the result of there is that like they don't really learn about it or put it to practice. And anybody who's learned about algorithms or anything like that knows that until you've actually coded it and knowing it in theory and knowing how to actually implement it is like two completely different things. So true. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Incident.io. Every software team on the planet has to manage incidents and a very large percentage of those teams are using Slack to communicate. That includes us. With Incident.io, you can create, manage, and resolve incidents directly inside Slack. Here's how it works. Head to Incident.io and sign up for free, then add it to your Slack. From there, you have a brand new incidents channel where all incidents get announced. Use the slash incident command to create and manage incidents. This command lets you share updates, assign roles, set important links, and more, all without ever leaving the incident channel. Each incident gets their own Slack channel plus a high-res dashboard at incident.io with the entire timeline from report to resolution. Get everyone on the same page from the moment they join the incident and help stakeholders stay in the loop. Add incident IO to your Slack today and prove to yourself and your team that they have everything you need to streamline your incident management. Learn more and sign up for free at incident.io. No credit card required. Again, incident.io. Yeah, so it's very interesting, this idea. I think some of the technical problems that we face are probably quite unique. And it'd be interesting because, you know, you could imagine there being like a Go package that you can just pick up and just use. And And I know there are some examples of frameworks like that. But I find that in some way, your problems really are quite unique. But obviously, like learning a pattern like this from people that have implemented it can only really help there. But it's interesting. So one of the other questions I had about this was whether system design itself can help here. And so I'm thinking things like idempotency or idempotency, if you like. 
do things like that help? You know, when we're talking about message queues and, and messages flying around, they may or may not make it. And you kind of have to assume that sometimes they're not going to make it, like, which is kind of unusual when you're programming because you tend to think of, you just write code and you don't assume at any point something's just not going to work, really. Yeah. Or that you're going to get the same message multiple times. That is yeah. very, very common within distributed systems, right? So you kind of have to factor in idempotency and things like that. Why does that happen? Why does it happen that you get the same message multiple times? Well, you can imagine if you have, say you have a cluster of systems who are uh, responsible for relaying a certain me- uh, message at a certain time, maybe the coordination. I have a feeling it's going to vary from product to product. But assuming you have a system uh, where, where you require some coordination to relay that a particular message was communicated or that a client picked up a message or whatever it is. You know, it could be timing, it could be however they track which message has already been communicated. And because you, know, the, you might have some overlap at some point, though rare, it does happen, right? So it could be that the same message finds itself, you know, sort of a, um, staying in a queue when it's already been picked up. The window for it, you know, for whatever reason doesn't get set to hide it from other clients picking it up. So that message, you know, ends up getting picked up again uh, um, multiple times, sometimes by the same client, sometimes by other clients. So you kind of need to sort of factor in the fact that in a distributed system, especially when, it, with, when messages are involved, which is a common thing for evented systems or, or where you need to do asynchronous communication you know, using queues and, and event bridge, you know, for example, is, is a common one now with AWS and whatnot. So these kinds of systems, you kind of have to factor in the fact that you may get a, a message, right, multiple times. And it's up to you as a developer, right? They're not going to solve that as a systems level at this point. It's up to you as a developer, right, to engineer your software for that uh, eventuality. And this is this idempotency, idempotency word. That I, how do you all say that word, by the way? Idempotency. Idempotency. Yeah, okay. Idempotency, cool. You want, you want to try it again, Matt? That doesn't mean it's correct. It's just the way I say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'll just go with peer pressure. I'm happy with that. <laughs> I think one thing that's interesting about the messages, like what Johnny was saying, is that in the ideal world, you want something that's like you get every message exactly once, but we all know that's not realistic. So like you kind of have two choices. It's like you occasionally don't get messages, which could be awful, or you have the opposite of you might get messages multiple times. And when you're looking at the two trade-offs, like getting them multiple times is clearly a better option than not knowing about something you needed to know about. Yeah, right. So then idempotency then is the idea that assuming you get the same message twice, your system should be in the same state as if you just got it once. Mm -hmm. And a simple example is like addition, like a plus one message is not idempotent. If you get two of those plus one messages and you've got some value, it's going to be end up being plus two. If, however, you get a value that says set it to the number one, if you get that message twice, then it's okay. You get it once, it sets it to number one. The second message comes in, you set it to number one and you're, you're in the same state. And that's like a contrived example. But when you build your own systems, you will understand, I think, you'll see that for anyone that hasn't done it before, you'll see in your particular case, a real example probably of that kind of thing. And and so, yeah, sometimes it's like, well, I think you have to assume that you're going to get the messages multiple times. Francesca Campoy, actually, of Just for Funk fame and loads of other things, told me once of a time when it was building something and, and for whatever reason, like one in a hundred messages just took a long time or like a request was made. It just took a really long time. So the way they dealt with it was they would just always make two requests and if, you know, whichever one came back first, we'd just cancel the other one. So almost by design there, they're sending multiple messages. So you kind of need then some resilience with idempotency or something in that case. Yeah. One of the um, top tips around sagas that are usually mentioned is to use transaction IDs so that you can use these transaction IDs to know if this particular transaction ID was already processed or not. For example, if you're changing data, you don't exactly have a plus one, but you might be getting into the case where you're updating your database twice or, or whatever, which wouldn't be a critical case, but still you, you probably don't want to do that operation. But for example, in banking, if the request really is transfer 10 pounds to that other account, yeah. you don't want to process that message twice. So you can use transaction IDs to guarantee that if this message comes, you just don't process it again because you already processed this transaction ID, you just throw it away. 
And that's one of the key things also about sagas is to use transaction IDs mm. that help you in more than just this, but it's very, very helpful to guarantee that you're not making the wrong changes. Yeah. One example that I think people might be familiar with is when you do an update in like a SQL request, a SQL command executed, you, you can sometimes have conditions, can't you, on an update. So you can say, update this if the, a particular value is what you expect it to be and i've seen this done with like a version number as well in the row so you know you might read the record and you see it's version nine and then you say okay make this update on the condition that the version is still nine and then if anyone's been in there before that to update it that will fail because oh, something else has changed you have to sort of go back and then do it so that's kind of one example of a simpler version i think but maybe you could tell us a bit more about the saga pattern like how does it actually work and what does it do i'm going to focus a bit more on the um, on the orchestration pattern mm -hmm. uh, i haven't had a lot of experience with choreography with orchestration what happens is you, you have again a central brain that is coordinating the changes and whenever there's a request that says i need to change data in these free services or for example, there's a new order here. Let's pick up that order example because it's a really good one and it's one that is often used in these cases. So there's a new order. So the orchestrator will then be responsible for putting a message in the queue and saying, there's a command to update the order. And the order service will be responsible for getting that and taking that stock out of order or holding that stock, whatever it might be. And then it will reply. So there is a concept of a reply channel within your message broker. So you, you use a message broker for this. And there's a concept of a reply channel, which the orchestrator is set to always listen to. And so when the order service says in this reply channel, it, it sends a command saying order updated, the saga will then call the other service subsequently through this message broker. One important thing that the Saga Orchestrator is also responsible for is to hold a log of the transactions in the state. So essentially, the Saga Orchestrator will need to know in which state it is to know which of the services it should call next. And then finally, you have the concept of compensating your transactions. So in case you told the order service to hold the stock, you told the payment service to capture the payment or, or to hold the funds for the customer, and then you told the shipping service to ship, if the shipping service said, I cannot ship this, we're having problems, then you probably will need to roll these changes back for whatever reason. And again, there's another business case here that you could just say, okay, you don't roll back, but you just wait until you can ship this. But let's suppose that we want to roll back here. What you would do is then start issuing compensation commands. And so in that reply message, instead of the command being move forward to the next step, or I updated this, the command will be, I failed, compensate. And the Saga Orchestrator is then responsible to say, okay, then payment service compensate this, or for example, release the funds or refund the customer, order service compensate this, so put the stock back in the place it was. And this is how these systems can self-heal. And the Saga will always keep the log of what's going on, of which point for each transaction ID, it's very important to have those transaction IDs to know which of the transaction you're talking about at this point. And you'll always keep a log of your steps and the compensating transactions that you need to do or the next transactions that you need to do. So is this a case where every service, every microservice needs to know how to kind of undo itself or maybe not, depending on, on your case? It depends on the business. But if you need to roll back, if you want to have the concept in your business of rolling back data or the concept of rolling forward, for example, instead of deleting the row on the database, you add a new row with the previous data. That's also a valid way to do it. Each service should know how to compensate the transactions. Yeah. And it's interesting, this kind of speaks to why there isn't just a Go package that you can just implement, really, because yeah. a lot of it is about the business logic. A lot of it is very specific to what you want to happen in each case. But it kind of reminds me of errors in Go. We do kind of consider the failure case. So if we try and open a file, we know that that may not open for whatever reason. With Go, errors are brought to the forefront, aren't they? They're, they're returned usually as the second or last argument, hopefully the second. And so we, we get these values back that we then immediately check and we get into that habit. And I know that some people still kind of complain about this in Go, but it forces you to consider the failure case. It forces you to think upfront about what's going to happen if this thing goes wrong. So it kind of reminds me a bit of that. 
at this point, I think if someone still has a problem with the way Go handles errors, the well, I have choice words for you, but you know, this is a family friendly show. <laughs> anyway, so um, no, the thing is, I mean, it's it's there's a lot of truth to that, right? So I used to be one of those people complaining about you know the way Go handles uh, errors when I first came across it. And I'm like, ah, like I'm trying to, I'm not used to this. I'm used to sort of uh, yeah. throwing things, you know, catching things, and when I'm like, like where are the keywords? Where are the built-ins for that, right? And then I realized, like, the first time I, I was forced to implement and design a system that was resilient enough, it just happens to be, you know, I was communicating with some uh, remote HTTP service, and um, I was getting throttled, and I didn't, you know, realize that until they went to, you know, a production, whatever it is. I'm like, oh, okay, I need to do something about this. And there's easy ways of, of getting that, right? So basically using the error system to capture the fact that I'm getting throttled, you know, checking those errors and having, implementing some sort of back off and implementing some sort of retry, things like that. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. That was a yeah. That was a retry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you just guaranteed that that cough is going to make it into the show. I know. Really? I just guaranteed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me retry this. <laughs> I mean, you're using the language and using what it provides you, right? There's a reason these things are there. So to kind of tie this back to what we we're talking about before around the sort of the design of these systems. Yes, it, it is hard to sort of have a framework or a package that you can just throw it at things to sort of fix these kind of problems or implement them for you because it's going to be very contextual to the business that you're in, to the problem domain that you're in. But for me, that is part of the fun. That is part of the engineering fun, right? I think everybody, hopefully, if you're lucky enough and, and you get to work on a system that is distributed, that is large enough to require these kinds of problems, I think some of these systems have been the most fun I've had, sort of, you know, engineering solutions because they acknowledge the fact that the world is not sort of linear, a linear sequence of events. There's always things going on, you know, sort of concurrently or in parallel with whatever it is you're doing right now. So it's an acknowledgement of the reality of the world that systems failed, network fails, disks fail. There's going to be some sort of failure. It could even be sort of a business you know, logic, right, that actually fails or whatever it is you're trying to do. So it's an acknowledgement of the fact that things will not go as planned. And you should build in the resiliency, right, in your system to be able to sort of accommodate for these kinds of uh, this, these eventualities, right? Mm. So I think it's a perfectly reasonable thing to expect engineers working on uh, systems of a certain size to know about the Saga pattern, for example, to know about how to build these resilient systems and, and to work with the, you know, their teams to figure out, okay, what, what are the different failure modes? What are the things that could go wrong in the process, right? When, what are the workflows that we need to set? Parts on the component can wait for other parts to recover and things like that. So identifying these things, that is the beauty of, of engineering these kinds of solutions. Yeah, that's very cool. That's you make it you get me excited now. But I want to go and build some enormous thing. <laughs> you want to build some yeah. <laughs> a distributed system. <laughs> On the topic of packages, there are I think there are a couple of packages implementing sagas, and I think you can make this generic enough that okay, you define your business logic, you define the functions that proceed with a transaction or compensate, and then you have the library that just wraps everything. Mm. But I think I couldn't agree more with Johnny. What's the fun in that? What's the fun in using something? <laughs> already built when you're dealing with this interesting problem so yeah i think it's mm. it's always cool to build new things yeah it's funny as well like what it leads you to do with eventual consistency out of an example in the front end where the actual request would usually take some time and in a big distributed system if it was like say a chat app one person might be in south america and another person might be in scotland and it's possible that the they won't be speaking to the same server in a distributed system. They're probably going to be talking to their own local servers, so it's faster. So what happens is then somebody in Scotland will make some comment. And if you build it so that you're kind of being very true about what's happening, that would take quite a while to complete. Like you would have to wait for it to be written to the local database, also then be copied across so that the person in South America can see it. And that might take some time. And so I've done this too in the past where you you kind of do some tricks to paper over this a little bit. For example, when you press enter on the message, you immediately pop it into the box so it looks like it's sent, even though that's just an illusion while the request is still happening in the background and the the consistency is still not there yet. You know, you still have to wait. But you sort of assume or you pretend it's going to be fine and only later in our particular case later if there was a problem you would then flag the message as oh there was some problem with this you can retry or whatever or it would even retry for you 
And so you end up doing those kinds of little tricks to paper over the realities here. And if you think about like the internet, there's so many errors all the time happening on the internet and we don't really notice them. You know, we can still carry on, like we're still just doing a live chat now. We're spread all over the world, us four. So that's always quite fun as well, I think, when you think about user experience and how that plays. You know, understanding that this is going to take time. It might fail, but we're going to assume it's not going to fail and crack on with it. One of my favorite talks around sagas, and I haven't admittedly watched that many, but I really like that this talk is by um, a woman called Katie McCaffrey. She had a lot of lead roles in Twitter and Microsoft, and she gives the example of sagas with the Halo game and dealing with the scoring, where each score comes from each individual Xbox, and then you have to commit all these scores to every other Xbox of all the other players. So imagine you're playing online, and imagine that you see your score is 100, and all other players will need to see that your score is 100 and their score is whatever it is. Mm. But you, you can't really show people that their score is now lower than it was before. So you can't really roll back that score. Mm. And so what they did is like, people don't care about having the score right away. So we just let the system heal itself. We just let the system eventually get all the scores <laughs> to every person because it, is, it doesn't really matter because people just go on to the next game and the score will eventually be there. And I think it's a really, really interesting example. The talk is brilliant. I recommend everyone to watch it if they're interested in this topic. Yeah, well, please send us the link and we'll pop it into the show notes. Will do. We won't be able to put Tiago's talk in the show notes because I don't think it's going to be published by the time this episode goes out. But keep on there. Go Time FM on Twitter. We'll tweet it there or eventually you'll, you'll find it. <laughs> I've got another ex- example of a real one that I had where I built this like game. It's like a choose your own adventure game on Twitter where the audience chooses the the branch to go down of the story by using Twitter polls. So the whole, you know, all the followers vote and that's the decision that's then taken. And when using the Twitter API to read the the poll results, sometimes I'd get old data. And this again is down to eventual consistency. The fact that there may be some of the servers probably had the latest information, but it just hadn't propagated across the system yet. So for whatever reason, through the magic of routing around the internet, I was hitting a server with old data. And it reminds me of that Xbox score problem. The fix was to just basically say, well, if there's there's no way to unvote on Twitter, so if the data, if there's fewer votes, ignore it. It's old data. That was like a bit of resilience that I didn't expect. And again, it's because I think I just assumed when you ask Twitter, what's the latest results, they'll tell you what the latest results are. But of course, in the real world, it's not so easy. But that was that's another kind of interesting thing you have to do and when dealing with eventual consistency. There are some systems that understand this dilemma and actually offer you a choice, right? Mm. For whether you want, when you make your request, whether you're okay with the possibly stale data mm-hmm. or whether you want your request to be basically strongly consistent with what's basically you know in the cluster. That's, that's really funny, that is. Yeah, you, you can ask for that. And and basically that come the trade-off, right, is comes at the cost of that your request might take longer. Right. You might have to pay a little more, right? Mm. But if that is these are you willing to basically make that trade-off, you can make a request and it says, hey, I want all the servers in a cluster to synchronize and agree on what the latest is, mm. right? Don't just give me the first one that is able to give me an answer that could possibly be stale. I want them to all figure out, okay, yep, we all agree that this is the right answer and send that back to you. You incur that cost, right? That the, your request is going to be slower and you're going to pay more for it. But if your problem domain is one that sort of requires that sort of consistency, there are systems out there that will provide that to you. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Imagine seeing that in an API, though. It's like, would you like the rubbish version? <laughs> <laughs> but it's fair enough. It is a trade-off. It's the cheap version versus the expensive version, Matt, not the rubbish version. I know, but that just seems like they're trying to upsell. <laughs> this is your API. You're like, do you want the rubbish version or not? Yeah, that's your flag. it's like for the free one, it's fine, but occasionally it's just random crap data. <laughs> the examples I've always seen are like there's databases that do this where like if you have five database nodes and like you write and it's guaranteed to be written to say three of them so that you know yeah. like there's a, a quorum I think so they call it right like there's a lot of databases that do that and when you're reading there there's certain data that you pretty much need to show up to date for certain reasons mm. like if a user just created an order and it doesn't show up in their account they're going to be like well what happened yeah but on the other hand if they're looking at like reviews for some products on your page 
well, if those aren't up to date, it's not the end of the world. So it's yeah. kind of this deciding which data it's okay to do that with. Because the downside is if you try to make everything up to date all the time, then you'd basically lose all the benefits of having this you know, spread out database system that you have because it just you'd be the same as just having like one sort of master you write to. And mm-hmm. master is probably the wrong word because <laughs> I'm just used to the uh, what SQL sort of terminology. Yeah. But essentially you have like one main. I think one you mean pre- main. That's that's the yeah. Main is, is the word you're looking for. Yeah. Okay. So you have the main and then you have the secondaries. Is that the new? Primary, secondary, whatever set you want to use. Yeah. John, you're like an uncle that's really digging himself. <laughs> <laughs> I am digging myself a hole. It's one of those things where like I've heard yeah. the terminology forever and I know I need to change it, but I don't say them often enough because I'm not like around other engineers often enough to use them. Yeah. So it's like, darn it, I did that stupid thing again. <laughs> At least you're aware of it and are not working on it. That's all we ask, right? <laughs> I try to keep up with it, but with the kids, it's hard sometimes. <laughs> no, but yeah, you're right. So that's the thing that the advantage of having a fast system that is distributed is you don't have to wait so much for all that. But of course, sometimes you'd prefer it. And yeah, that's interesting. And I think it gives people a lot to think about when when they're designing their system. And honestly, I think the user experience, which you mentioned, John, is kind of like the something that you should consider to take into consideration because users will expect something and we have to kind of make sure that they get what they need and that might influence might well influence the design and should influence the design of the system and these kinds of decisions if you think of the case of insurance where changing your data is not only something that you need to show the customer but it's something that is reflected on a legal document the final policy it's like in, in which you have that final policy, that's the law. With whatever information is there, whatever the user declared there, it needs to be the most accurate information. If you have an inconsistency between this policy document and your systems, and then while your policy has one type of information, there's some other request that is very important, gets a different type of data, and then it shows a different type of data. This this can actually be quite serious. So it's it mm. goes a bit beyond the, the just the user experience. It, it can have a, actually legal implications. So it's also interesting from that point of view. Hmm. So can you imagine a time where people had to, in the case of insurance, for example, where people had to sort of manually do data entry so to process these things? So maybe you talk to your agent who then, you know, gets a piece of paper or whatever it is. You know, back in the day, you used to go to an office and they would come to your house, whatever it is. And then by the time they leave your presence to go, like commit to this transaction, right? I mean, your house kind of fat, could catch on fire. You could get into an accident, whatever it is. So that buffer where, where you have no, yeah. technically, legally, you have no coverage, right, in your insurance. I guess that you can use the proof of communicating that, like date and time. I communicated this at this date and time, so this is my accurate data. It kind of solves it for you, I, I reckon. I think they can sort of backdate some things too to sort of, like as long as they claim they mm. received payment or something yeah. and it was backdated, you're okay. Because I think I had some weird situation like that where something like I communicated it needed to be canceled and they tried to renew it. And I was like, no, I can sort of like just weird things like that. Show it. But I think even what is it? The health insurance you get if you leave a company is it Cobra? Cobra. Yeah. I think Cobra, you can like sort of go back and there's some things you can do weird with it where you can like almost turn it on retroactively. Why would you need that? Or something. But I don't remember exactly how that works. You only need to do that if you've hurt yourself, I suppose. It's weird the way it is, because I think yeah. you can opt for it or you can like retroactively, but you have like a short window to do it. I got three month period or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because of that, like in case they don't get the papers or something, you aren't left hanging. I don't really know. Coming up next on insurance time, we're going to be talking about <laughs> premiums. Well, we, of course, uh, Tiago and I live in a country that has socialized healthcare. And there goes all the, the listeners and viewers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you also work at Cover, don't you? I do, I do. That's why I keep talking about insurance because it's the domain I'm familiar with in this uh, circumstance. <laughs> but on the topic of how complex it is to manage these systems, one of the funniest, most interesting question that I think summarizes everything around this that I had at, at GopherCon was someone asked me, is this even worth it? Is it even worth us, us doing all this? Why don't we just have our old monolith? Mm. And again, like the answer is maybe an old monolith <laughs> is the best solution for you. Mm. Like no one says you you really have to go into microservices. And sometimes it's just simpler to deal with a monolith or even if you wanted to, if that little piece of your system is like if the orders and the payment and the shipping are so interrelated, maybe just create a, a kind of a micro lift just to manage that if you find that it's simpler. So there's no 
one size fits all. There's no one magic solution. Mm. And yeah, I think that's it's very interesting. And then we should also mention a little bit about testing because must be quite important, especially when we're talking about failure cases. Do you try and write tests or have some kind of test coverage for those failure cases? How do you make sure that the rollback stuff's working as expected? Someone actually asked this during my talk, during the questions. And I think this, to properly test this, you need to go to the integration testing level. I think unit tests can miss a lot of things here. If you go to the integration testing level, I think there's a concept. If you look at Stripe's API, they have a really interesting concept to test cards failing and cards with no funds. So they have different cards number for test cards that you can use. And one card number will be a card that requires 3DS and is okay to go. Another card number will always have an insufficient funds and you can test it this way. That's mine. (laughs) (laughs) Give me your number, Matt. I need to test that. (laughs) And with Sagas, it's the same thing. You can think of an integration test where you send data with particular fields like this transaction ID or this particular transaction ID is a transaction ID that will fail at this step. And then you can test that your Saga on an integration level with all your message queues up, all your databases up, and you can test that your Saga does what it's supposed to. And I think that's one of the, the ways to tackle this. You could even test that in production. <laughs> yes, I mean, seriously, I'm being serious. Like, like <laughs> you can literally, right, as maybe as part of a canary or something like that, right, um, make sure that whenever you roll this out, that all of those failure um, cases that you think work in, in, in your CI and CD pipeline and your staging environment, whatever it is, that they actually do work in production as well once you roll it out, right? Yeah. I'm becoming more and more of a fan of testing in production in general. So that's why I'm saying it. Do you need the, each service to implement rubbish mode again so that each service can actually fail as well? No, right? Because if the service is doing what it's supposed to do, well, if you have a transaction that's supposed to fail, it will fail if you try to talk to the credit card charging service. Mm. And it sees that transaction and that basically return a failure from, from something yeah. you expect to be a failure, then all the other systems don't need to know that, okay, we're all in testing mode, okay, all other components, that's what we're doing. No, they individually they work as they're supposed to. And only you as the orchestrator, you know, know that okay, this should fail in at this particular step in the workflow. Mm. And, but you can do that in production. It reminds me of that sentence from the Falcon and the Winter Soldier of he's out of line, but he's right <laughs> about <laughs> testing in production. It's actually not a bad, uh, a bad idea when you think of it. What's going on, Gophers? This episode is brought to you by Equinix Metal. If you want the choice and control of hardware with low overhead and the developer experience of the cloud, you need to check out Equinix Metal. Deploy in minutes across 18 global locations from Silicon Valley to Sydney. Visit metal.equinix.com slash just add metal and receive $100 in credit to play with. Again, metal.equinix.com slash just add metal. And by our friends at Fastly, they're running a massive promo on Compute at Edge. They're inviting our entire listener base to move latency-sensitive workloads to the edge with Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. This is a limited-time offer, so head to Fastly.com slash podcast as soon as you can to check it out and get all the details. Here's the TLDR. Fastly's edge cloud network and modern approach to serverless computing allows you to deploy and run complex logic at the edge with unparalleled security and blazing fast computational speed. Scale instantly and globally, reduce origin load, get real-time observability, and get seamless integration with your existing tech stack. Head to fastly.com slash podcast to get Compute at Edge free for three months, plus up to $100,000 a month in credit for an additional six months. Once again, fastly.com slash podcast. Tiago, have you brought an unpopular opinion with you today? I have two, and you'll need to choose which is more unpopular, and that's the one you're going to use. We sort of make the rules on this show, actually. (laughs) But yeah, we will do that, but it's because we want to, not because you've said it. (laughs) Okay, yeah, go on then, what's your first one? First one, Hmm. and note that this comes from a guitarist, but... 
bass guitar is actually way cooler than electric guitar or just normal guitar. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what? I love the bass guitar. Me too. Yeah. I can't vote on this because I tried <laughs> to learn bass guitar and it was just too boring for me. It just didn't jive <laughs> with me. <laughs> That's why it's unpopular. Yeah. So, yeah. but the thing is, I couldn't do regular guitar either. Like, neither one <laughs> caught my interest. So I'm like, they both were just boring. You need a guitar with five strings, sounds like. You'd be good on that. You need the Goldilocks guitar. They're both boring things, and I can't vote on which is more boring to me. <laughs> boring. Amazing. The other unpopular opinion, which is a bit more on the techie side, mm. is that move slower, think through things is more effective than move fast, break things. Right. So that's a, a popular Facebook motto of move fast, break things. Mm -hmm. And I like to say, I think moving slower and thinking through things is actually more effective than moving fast and breaking things. Well, definitely in Facebook's case. And those things, it's fine if those things are just like servers or bits of UI, but when they're democracies, <laughs> then yeah, I would like to go a bit slower. Thank you. <laughs> Okay, but do you not see, is there value in like the learning you get from actually implementing stuff? Like actually doing it always for me reveals things that I probably would never have thought of, or maybe I would. My caution comes from the place that you always need to be aware of the technical depth that you're introducing by move fast and think and break things. Mm -hmm. And if you can't pay that technical debt, it's fine. But if you can't, not making a good design decision, not thinking through a problem, can really bite you in the long run. Mm -hmm. I suspect this motto stems from the fact that it's the type of motto you'd hear from a small startup where basically their option is move fast and get like money before we go broke because they don't have the time to move slow. So while there, there might be cases where some are much better off moving slower, I think sometimes when you're just desperate to get any sort of income and, and to be able to stay alive, that leads to this like move fast, break things. So there's this interesting book. I can't remember for the life of me. I can't remember the name of the book. And they explain an interesting phenomenon, which is the company that moved really fast to get on the market and made a lot of trade-offs. It can move fast, but then it has a line that it starts flatlining in terms of progress. Whereas the company that took a bit longer to go to the market, but have well-fought systems and architectured in a way that they can extend it, they can add new functionalities like that, they can actually pick up and even surpass it in the long run. And that's one one thing that really stuck to me because it, it can be quite cumbersome to have to maintain a lot of old code that old code that wasn't really well thought of. I mean, I absolutely agree that yeah. introducing too much debt is a like could be a, a big issue. And I think the larger or more stable your company is, the more that applies. I would probably only like disagree with that opinion in the case that there are definitely some companies that like if you're trying to build something and you literally don't even know if you're going to be something people want to pay for or use, then like spending months trying to design the perfect system might not be the best idea, given that you might design a perfect system that nobody wants to use. I agree with you there. That's why it's an unpopular opinion. <laughs> even you don't agree with it. <laughs> um, to be honest, it probably depends. We need a jingle for it depends, don't we, really? But I, I see that the kind of the merits in that. And actually, I think sometimes taking your time, making things easy to change and throw away, like moving fast, if you're not going to keep the thing, I think that's quite nice. So building something deliberately not very high fidelity so that you are, if you're testing those ideas and then you throw it away and you do have to throw it away. And I do find that I use that mechanism to learn and then that will be how I design the system. And only after I've done a bit of that am I then ready to start to actually lay down some more serious foundations. And so in a sense, like I use that pro fast prototyping as part of the design process. So you could say I am doing quite a big design process there. I object only to when we, we just spend too much time in documents and we're trying to imagine things and there will be things that happen that surprised you. So get it out there soon. But yeah, it's a very interesting point. I think you should build your systems to be extendable. Like don't try to picture and envision all of the perfect future that this system will do, mm. but make it so that if a lot of things need to change, your system is resilient enough to be changed and, and it can be very easily changeable. It's very flexible in that way. 
Only after the third try. <laughs> <laughs> I do agree. There's a lot of value in experimenting and throwing things away. And using technical depth to your advantage is also very valuable. So yeah, again, that's why it's an unpopular opinion. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, I have one. I have one. Oh, ooh, Johnny. What, what is it? Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Here it is. Mm-hmm. Blockchain. Ooh, what? Blockchain developer is the new hotness mm. of jobs. Yeah. Now, whether or not you care for or think blockchain is a scam or whatever it is that I see you know, written out there, wherever you fall on, on the divide, right? Mm. Wherever there's money or potential for money, capitalists show up, people with money who want to make more money show up, and they're going to throw lots of money at this thing, right? And the more I learn about this world, and I don't know a ton about it, but the more I learn about it from a business standpoint, not less so from a technical standpoint, but the more I see, I'm like, I I start seeing uh, um, um, job um, postings all over the place now for blockchain developer. And it's really is going to be one of those kind of odd, weird looking things like you're going to start seeing sort of pop up everywhere. And and as with most things, as with most technology, right, there are two times right when uh, the the going is good right in in those fields right before the market gets flooded right when everybody's competing on salary right so it's usually at the very beginning of the technology right and at the very end where there's only when there's only two people left who know the tech right those are the two times when you really can make bank on a tech and i think right now we're sort of in the infancy right at the beginning stages of this whole blockchain engineering and developer talent kind of um wave and again, regardless of how you feel about the technology or its applications, right, there's going to be a fervent need for people who understand that stuff. And they're going to be paid well, at least for the next four or five years or so. Mm. So if that's something that's of interest to you, hey, maybe now is, uh, you know, time to take a look into it. <laughs> I feel that there's a new blockchain company starting up every day. Every, yeah. This point. <laughs> Pretty much. You need to learn blockchain now and then learn like Haskell later. And I'll be golden. <laughs> yeah. There's got to be some service left, right? Like, I assume yeah. so. Hey, if you know COBOL right now, you can charge a premium, my friend. Mm. I've heard that with some of them, but it's just, I don't know if I'd appreciate it. Yeah, if you don't like bass guitar, you're not going to like COBOL. You're not going to like COBOL. Yeah. <laughs> Boring. COBOL is one of those languages where the column matters. The first six columns or something, you they mean something. They change. I don't really know. I don't know it. but Yeah, kind of like spaces mattering in Python. Yeah. But weirder, because it's like lots of space and you each one means something and you can change things like by putting something else in that space. So I, I, I heard an unpopular opinion. Matt says Python is weird. That's what I heard. <laughs> That's very popular. <laughs> mm. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, this is a Go podcast, but I'm one of those people that's like, you know, do what makes you happy and use whatever tool you like and use Go. Learn Go, really, and just do that. That's <laughs> Do learn Go, though. You can do blockchain with Go, can't you? After this, I will learn Go. Yeah, you should, mate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's time. Yeah, Go's it's hot time. in the blockchain, man. Yeah. Go is hot in that sector. Yeah. I feel like Johnny's like telling people that he's open for offers. <laughs> 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 like very subtly, but he's like, just in case. Yeah. Subliminal messaging. Mm. <laughs> if you get a bunch of recruiters after this, it's your own fault. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and we know they're not going to make any sense. However long the blockchain's been around, they're going to say you need that plus five years of experience. You need, yeah, exactly. 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 <laughs> well, if you've got any more questions, Johnny can be found on Twitter at <laughs> Jay Borsico. Good luck spelling his name, though. That's clever. <laughs> yeah, which is why you omitted that whole thing by, by posting my name up as Golang Johnny on, on GoTime <laughs> FM. I can't believe that. You can just search <laughs> Golang Johnny yep. and you find, you find Johnny. How cool is that? I just assumed he officially changed his name. Oh, yeah. For you. <laughs> that is my new career goal. Yeah. Golang Tiago or Tiago Lang, and you can find Ooh. me. Ooh. Well, you could do it with a brand name, but hang on, let's just do it. I'm just going to do it. Golang Tiago. You might, you might be surprised. You might be surprised, yeah. Golang Tiago. Nowhere to be seen. No, you are actually. You are on the front page of the search engine I'm using. Is that Alta Vista? No, I just asked Jeeves still. We only have that in the UK. There's a package.dev. That's not me. Yeah, there's a package called Tiago, which is, that's unfortunate. Just going to have a quick look at, see what that package is. It's just a main file that just says, it prints out. Tiago says, look, 
my very first contribution to a proper free software project. And that's it. How adorable is that? <laughs> that's scratchtiago, main.go. Oh, <laughs> I love the internet. And we'll post show notes to that repo so we can get the stars way up. Let's get this trending. <laughs> Let's get Let's this Tiago package trending. trending. To be clear, that is not mine. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, it's too neat to be your code, Tiago. Oh, goodness <laughs> gracious. That is some shade. That means you've seen my code. Yeah. So true. you're already talking about it and generating buzz. That's my goal. There you go, then. That's like fake code. It's like the fake news approach to code. I always know I've gone too far when Johnny goes, ooh. But that's when I worry then. <laughs> like, oh, no, that's too much now. Johnny's like my canary when he gets worried <laughs> when he gets worried about something I do well you believe it or not that's our time I can't believe it it's been uh, so interesting and it's such an interesting subject that I'm sure we could continue to talk about for ages I feel there's going to be a part two yeah um, okay again mate wait till you're invited <laughs> eventually I will eventually get there yeah yeah eventually it's going to happen <laughs> No, but definitely, yes, thank you. Please do come back, Tiago. And, you know, if you want to follow any of our panelists or guests on Twitter, you can do so. Check out the show notes. We link to their Twitter accounts there. I only say that because that's the kind of place we usually hang out. Not always, but there we go. Thank you so much, Tiago Mendes, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. No, it was our pleasure. Johnny Borsico was also here, as was John Calhoun. I don't need to say my name again. It's just weird, but... Bye. That is our show for this week. Thanks for listening. If you dig Go Time, pay it forward by telling a friend about the show. Word of mouth is the number one way people hear about us, and we'd love to have them as a listener. Go Time is produced by Jared Santo with music by our beat freak in residence, Breakmaster Cylinder. We are brought to you by some awesome partners. Special thanks to Fastly, LaunchDarkly, and Linode. Next up on the pod, Chris and Johnny invite Aaron Schlesinger and Sam Boyer back to the show to continue our mini-series on maintenance. This installment is all about maintenance in the open source world. Stay tuned for that. It's coming up next time on GoTime. Like one of the big pieces of advice I've seen people give to new speakers is just don't take questions if you're not comfortable with them, because that can be something that scares people away. Yeah. Which I understand, like you don't want somebody to come in and be like, I'm going to try to make you look silly or something. And you worry that's going to happen. That's one of the beautiful things of this community is that people are not judgmental and people are not there trying to throw you off or see where your knowledge, where your knowledge gaps live. They're there really generally trying to learn something. And I have no problem on stage saying, I actually don't know the answer to that. I say it in different words. I say it depends, which is a lot better than saying, I don't know. It, you say it depends and it's done. Uh, but yeah, I feel, I feel like with this community, it's actually not that bad to take questions because there's kindness there. And, and I don't feel like anyone is there trying to be mean. Yeah, that, I know what you mean. And to, to be honest, Tiago, you did a great job. Like that, that as a session was like, honestly, if you did like a weekly just systems design hangout uh, thing. I think that would be very popular. Um, people would enjoy that. Or we can just invite him back into the show. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just saying. We've got a technical problem. We'll get Tiago back on. <laughs> Except our back end is not ready to go. Is it not? I, oh, no. Yeah, it's not going to be, is it, Jeremy? Go time is written, or change log is written in, what was it? It's uh, Rust, Elixir? It's, um, Elixir. Is it? Oh, wow. I have a big Elixir friend. Oh. How big is he? Yeah. He loves the language. How big is he? Well, he's about my size. Okay. Are you big? Okay. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> he's shaped like an elixir? Um, <laughs> big elixir <laughs> like, what, is it, what container is he in? Like, is that, like is he... Imaginary friend. Just yeah. my imaginary friend. He is to elixir the, way, the same way I am to go. Like, he absolutely loves the language. Yeah. But it's a very niche language, I feel. Yeah. If you came from, uh, if you were in the Ruby world uh, at a certain point, at a certain time in the past, and, and um, 
I believe uh, his name was uh, Jose Valim or something. Um, who basically started. Uh, he actually, so my friend works for the company that he started now. Oh yeah. Okay. There you go. I so, think so yeah, I, that, that, yeah. So he came from that very active in that Ruby community. And then basically when he started working on, uh, on Elixir, um, a lot of Rubyists were interested because of you know, him. He's a stand up, stand up person. And I learned in the very early days, pre 1.0, uh, I started learning Elixir. Um, right around those time, Go is also kind of becoming more and more um, popular. And I started looking at Go. I'm like, okay. So Elixir could almost became my next language. I'm going to search for Elixir Johnny. And then I, and I discovered Go. I see Rust as my potential secondary language. Mm-hmm. I never actually did anything with Rust, but looking at just the docs and the way things are, it feels it's closer to Go than a lot of the other things mm. that are out there. Like it's it's not a Java type of thing. So it felt it feels like a good next step. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well you'll have to let us know how you get on. Come back and tell us. Yeah. In give a us few like years a, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like a versus, you know. Like like I keep seeing comparisons of people saying, yeah, Rust is better than Go. Go is better than Rust. Yeah. I'm like, uh, if I knew both languages, I don't think I would use them interchangeably at all. <laughs> I think they're man, they solve very different problems in my mind. And I think I think Rust, it still feels like a bit of an overkill to use for just normal systems like web APIs and whatever. It feels like way more low level than than Go. Yeah. I don't know if they solved it yet. I remember that a few years ago. Uh, it was still very, you had to use Tokyo for the HTTP library to to do things, I think. So it felt a lot more lower level than Go. Uh, Johnny, I just did a search for Elixir Johnny and Johnny Depp comes up instead. Oh. Because I, I think he's done some... <laughs> some Something in, in that area. Yeah, there's an Elixir, is it a perfume or something? Yeah, there's some like witches or something mixing up some brews. Yeah, I, I don't want to, I wouldn't want to compete with, you know, Mr. Depp. No, it's a tough one. Yeah, yeah, it's a tough one. Yeah, but but Golang Johnny is, is all you, mate. Until Johnny Depp, of course, starts doing Go. Right then, yeah, then it's it's. Does he have Twitter? Can we tag him? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> hey, Mister Depp, <laughs> interested in doing some Go this afternoon? Well, then you'd have Go Depp back in to play. Oh, oh yeah, nice, <laughs> nice. <laughs> Go Depp, this time with an extra P. Yeah. Oh, here we go. This marketing started already. I'll manage your dependencies, mate. <laughs> here we are. We've got it. Oh, nice. We've got it. Oh, man. Yeah.